Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. For those of you visiting, we've been studying through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, It's the history of the early church, the very early church. And uh, what a blessing to see what God was doing then and what God has done through the centuries and what he's continuing to do in our day. In chapter 13, verse 2, we read that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch and they said, and he said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, whom we now understand as Paul, the apostle, separate to me Barnabas and Paul for the work which I have called them. And it says, then the church having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them and sent them away. So off they went on what's called the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. They they go off, they're sent off taking the gospel to the lost and dying world. We followed their travels in chapters 13 and 14 as they traveled northwest to the region of southern Galatia in Asia Minor. And it was there they preached in every city along the way the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And God was blessing their work. He sent them and now He's blessing blessing their work by saving both Jews and Gentiles from their sins. They preached and the people believed. However, not everyone believed. As you know, they and their message was received by some, but rejected by others, sometimes fiercely rejected. Even toward the end of that first journey, Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. He didn't die, though. They gathered around him. I'm sure they prayed, but he stood up and they went back into the city. Now, when they came to their final destination, which was the city of Derby, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That was the cities they'd already visited. And it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, as our brother quoted, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And it says they, in each of those cities, They appointed elders in every church. So there were churches. They had come together. And when God saves a person, He puts them in a church. God never intended for Christians to walk alone. But they were to come together. Called out of the world, but called to come together as a church. And it says they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. And they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they were on their way. Not to see them for a long time. Well, they returned to Antioch, to the church which sent them out, and they reported to them all that God had done with them, especially how God was pleased to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Gentiles were now part of the people of God. Unheard of. But God does the unheard of. (laughs) He brought them into His kingdom. And so in Antioch, Barnabas and Paul probably stayed there about a year, 
teaching and ministering to the saints, continuing to be used of God. And we know a lot happened in that year. These false teachers came in and and caused great dissension in the church. They were preaching another gospel. Well, it's a good thing that God brought Paul and Barnabas back when he did because they were used greatly to rebuke these false teachers and their false teaching. But here in chapter 15, we read in verse 36, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. That's what I want us to focus on this morning, that one verse. Uh, This proposal initiates Paul's second missionary journey. Luke gives us uh, the account of that beginning in verse 39 of this chapter, and it goes to chapter 18, verse 22, the second missionary journey. However, this morning, as I said, I want us to look at Paul's proposal to Barnabas, uh, which his proposal was not to go and cover new ground, but old ground where they had already preached, where sinners were converted and churches were established and elders were in those churches. You might ask the question, well, why not bypass that and go right to the new and the fresh territory where Christ had not been preached? And we know that uh, that was Paul's aim. He says to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 20, that he made it his aim to preach the gospel where Christ was not named. He didn't want to go where somebody else already preached. He wanted to preach where Christ was not named. But Paul was not only a faithful and zealous evangelist to preach the good news to those who had never heard the gospel. He was also a faithful shepherd and pastor to those who had believed the gospel, to those he left behind in these various cities. It's interesting that in his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, he had to engage some reluctant boasting of all the things that he had done and suffered for the name of Christ. And I'll just read a little bit of it. He says in verses 25 and following, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, referring to him being stoned there in that first journey. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. This is a description of his missionary journeys, by the way. He says, uh, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. It was everywhere he went. In weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, with fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And then he says this in verse 28, besides these other things, all the things he had just mentioned, What comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. My deep concern for all the churches. He knew personally and painfully well that when he left these new believers and these newly established churches behind, that they would face such opposition they had never knew before. From three enemies they never had before. Enemies from without and enemies from within. 
Those three enemies, I hope you know, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world that once loved them before they professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the world loved them because they were of the world. They would find this world would be no friend to grace to help them on to God, as we just sung. It would be there to try to draw them away from following Christ, to entice them, to promise all of its luxuries and so forth, and be there to persecute them if they continued to follow Christ. All who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. They would find in their own flesh, that second enemy, opposition to the things of God. They would be... uh, there would be a new warfare within their own hearts and minds. Paul calls it the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. And he says these two are contrary to one another. They'd be facing that battle daily. And then there's the devil. That roaring lion he calls him. That roaring lion who's going about seeking whom he may devour. He's not like this little red pitchfork in his hand, uh, tail wagging kind of creature. No, he is subtle, very subtle. And he's there to destroy them. Now, I know there are a number of new Christians here. You probably didn't know or realize that you now have these same three enemies. Yes, you do. You've believed in Christ. What a joy in coming to Christ. To have your sins forgiven. To, to have such wonderful things. You've lost friends, but you gained better friends. So many wonderful things have happened to you. You just can't believe it. And Like, like Bunyan, uh, to be forgiven and already dwell next door to heaven. That's how you feel. But then you find out you've got these enemies. And these enemies are wanting to pull you away from following Christ to destroy your soul in hell. Then you ask, well, didn't he pray for them? He, He prayed and committed them to the Lord for his safekeeping. And didn't Jesus say that no one would be able to pluck them out of his father's hand? Nothing to worry about, Paul. They'll be just fine. Didn't he write to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that He, speaking of God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Doesn't our own confession of faith speak of the certain perseverance of the saints? This is what it says, and we believe. We surely believe this. Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, that's a Christian, He's accepted you through Jesus Christ, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and been given the precious faith of His elect unto, they can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. That's what we believe. Yes, God has committed Himself to make sure that a Christian who truly turns to Christ will never walk away from Christ. In Sunday school, we've been looking at the subject of 
evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And we, how do these reconcile? How, how, how if God is sovereign and He's chosen certain ones to salvation, God is sovereign. He's the one who effectually draws them to Christ. They come willingly, but they do come. If God is sovereign, then why evangelize? And we've learned that God has chosen the means as well as the ends. He's told us to go and to preach the gospel. How shall they believe on him whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? So God has appointed the means. But then also something we need to understand, too, is that grace is not automatic. Uh, what I mean by that is that when a person gives his heart to Christ and believes in Him and he's born again, he's been given the Holy Spirit, now he can just sit back and it'll all just happen. I'll grow and I'll grow and I'll grow. I remember when I became a Christian, I thought, man, I'm growing so much. If I, I'm going to be a spiritual giant by the time I'm an adult. Or I was 18, but I thought I still wasn't an adult. But well, that didn't just happen like that, and it actually never happened. <laughs> the spiritual giant part, I mean. But what I do mean is that grace isn't automatic. It just doesn't just multiply and develop in you. We're told to grow in grace. But it's like a plant. You can buy a house full of plants, but if you never water them, they're not going to grow. They're going to die. There has to be means to help them to grow. It's the same thing in the spiritual realm. Grace isn't automatic. So here's Paul's proposal. He says, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. The first question I want to ask is, of whom is he speaking? He says, let's go and visit our brethren our brethren, he calls them brethren. Remember, he's speaking of both Jews and Gentiles. I've emphasized this before, but I'll emphasize it again. Here are two groups of people that had such a hostility towards one another. They wouldn't even go into each other's home. Now they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are brethren. They're all part of the same family of God. One Puritan, Thomas Adams, said, Such was that great apostle's humility that he calls all believers brethren to show that he had but the privilege of a brother and did not otherwise than all the rest bear the arms of the elder. He was an elder. He was an apostle. But he's calling them brethren. That's a humble statement of him. He said, Mr. Adams said, The weakest Christian is a brother to the holiest saint. Therefore, not to be contemned. They became their brethren by believing the gospel. They now belonged, as I said, to the same spiritual family. We sing that hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Some churches, it's a social binding. It's a social club. They have same interests and uh, same hobbies and so forth. And uh, it's just a social club. But a true church is a, a fellowship of true believers. That's where we get the, un, the, the unification. Last week we sang that hymn, Teach us the lessons Thou hast taught to feel for those Thy blood hath bought. 
that every word and deed and thought may work a work for thee. For there are brethren far and wide, since thou, O Lord, from them hast died. Then teach us whate'er so betide to love them all in thee. Well, he loved them because they belonged to Christ. They were his spiritual children. He preached, and he often referred to certain ones as my son in the faith or my child in the faith. Or He's saying that because he got up and preached the gospel. And they believed under his ministry. What a privilege he felt that was. These are my brethren. The Lord Jesus wasn't ashamed to call them brethren, and neither should we. Don't be afraid to call a fellow Christian a brother. You may not agree with him on everything, but you still can call him a brother. You may not have the same hobbies and, and temporal interests, but in Christ, he's your brother or your sister in Christ. I think we need, we need to constantly remind ourselves of this. And so that's the ones he wants to visit, our brethren. The second thing I want to point out is the costliness or difficulty of such a visit. You know, if we were going to make a visit, we just phone call, be over in so many minutes, hop in our car, and we're there. Isn't that nice? Well, that was a whole different story back then, to go visit someone. The travel alone would be exceedingly difficult. I mean, you imagine walking and sailing and the the, the storms that arise. And he talked about the hardships, shipwrecked three times. Lots of dangers, robbers everywhere you go. I was looking at some flights to Antigua. My brother Hensworth invited me to go there for Easter and preach there. I started looking at the flights and the problem was they've changed things quite a bit now. Now it's like 18 to 40 hours. Whoa, I know, I see some grimacing. Paul will go, 18 to 40 hours? <laughs> Are you kidding me? 18 to 40 hours sitting in a seat, air-conditioned, reading a magazine, reading a book. We thought, 18 hours. Now, the whole flight isn't 18. They fly you up to Canada first and sit there a while and then fly you down to Antigua. But uh, it's still, I mean, the travel now is so easy and we still complain. But you think of the travel then. And then think of the persecutions they met in nearly every city they entered. They preached the gospel. There was a positive response. And then the jealousy of the Jews would rise up. And they would stir up the people, both Jews and Gentiles, to persecute these these preachers for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Persecution like we've never seen before. We talked about Paul was stoned and left for dead. And we sang to him, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? All who would live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution, we're told. And yet someone said that we have in our day such a streamlined, upholstered, air-conditioned Christianity that we've forgotten that we're often called to hardship. And we're called to a warfare. And we're called to a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. It is a fight. But we must be like those it speaks of in the book of Revelation. They loved not their lives to death. And here's the Apostle Paul speaking to his brother Barnabas. Let's go and visit them again. You would think he just... 
got back. Now, they've been there about a year, but how would you like to look forward to that kind of a visit again? He was already bearing in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember seeing a movie years ago of, of um, David Livingston. There, he was he had a cameo in it of some sort, and uh, he met this other explorer. And then they got together. They just started showing each other their scars, their their battle wounds from the expeditions and so forth. And they're rolling up their sleeves. They're rolling up their pants. Look at this mark. Look at that mark. Paul could pull the shirt off his back and everybody would gasp. He loved not his life to death. But it was a costly visit. And yet he had such a pastor's heart and a a concern for their souls that he was ready to spend and be spent for them. He was ready at one point, he said, to pluck out his very eyes for them. And we wonder where our commitment to Christ and to His people really is. Well, then the purpose of such a visit. Notice he said, let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. (laughs) That's a question we always ask. uh, How are you? We usually don't mean it literally. (laughs) It's just a way to say hi sometimes. And sometimes if someone starts telling us they're problems or whatever's going on, we go, oh, no, I I wasn't expecting this. I've got to be somewhere. And uh, so we're not really interested. And sometimes we are, and I hope we are more than not. But I just noticed in the news that Elmo, <laughs> you've heard of, you kids know who Elmo is. I guess he put out a tweet. <laughs> he said, Elmo is just checking in. How's everybody doing? <laughs> That's what he asked. And I guess it's caused such an uproar on the Internet. The users are not holding back on how they're really feeling. And they're telling about everything from their marital problems to their economy to the last football game that they, they that their team lost. So they're complaining a whole lot. Well, Paul really did want to know how they were doing. And we should want to know how each other is doing, really. Now, he wasn't looking to know temporally how they were doing, though I'm sure that was a concern to him. We are temporal beings as far as we've got a human body and those bodies can be frail and subject to sickness and disease and so forth. But Paul, he wanted to know how they were doing spiritually. And of course, he had little or no knowledge to the state of condition of the church or the Christians there. No phones, no Internet. Um, And and the mail there, you know, we talk about snail mail. (laughs) Might take two days. Uh, it might take, I don't know how long, I won't even guess, but months to cross all that way and come back in this one letter. Well, he was certainly not proposing a vacation when he said to Barnabas, let's go and visit them, or even a social call or visit. And even though I'm sure he was concerned about their temporal welfare, as I said, he was most concerned about how they were doing spiritually. He wants to know, I'm sure, are they continuing in the faith? Some people start off well. And like that uh, parable of the the sower and the seed, the the seed that falls by the uh, among the the rocks, it springs up quickly. With joy they receive the word, and yet when the sun comes out, they just wither away. 
When the persecutions arise, they just wither away. Paul warned them, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Well, what have those tribulations done? Has it caused any of them to turn back? He was concerned about, are they continuing in the faith? The design of persecution is to make you give up. To make you think it's not worth it. Remember when Christian and Pliable, or Pilgrim and Pliable, left the city of destruction together. Christian had this burden on his back. I'm referring, of course, to Pilgrim's progress. And Pliable was all eager and ready to go until they fell into the slough of despond. Slough of despond, slough of despond. Fell into that and they, they, they couldn't get out. And, and Pliable was immediately offended. He says, is this the happiness you promised me? And that's the problem with a lot of preachers. They promise if you come to Christ, you're going to have blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Everything is going to be good. Health, wealth, and prosperity is yours if you'll just claim it. Paul said we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not worth it. And so Pliable said, if I can get out of here, I'm going back. And he did. Well, that's what happens to a lot of professing Christians. They receive it with joy. They seem like they're really excited about things. And yet in time, they just turn away. Nope, I've had enough. He wants to know, are they holding fast to the faith? Or had these false teachers, these Judaizers who had come to the church in Antioch, had their teaching made its way up there and poisoned them with a false gospel? We know it had. Because he wrote the book of Galatians about the same time. In the whole book of Galatians, he's asking questions like this. Who bewitched you? You were running well. What happened? And he knew what had happened. He knew what these teachers were like. Had they fallen from grace? That's the issue he was dealing with. Have you exchanged the true gospel The true gospel that says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Had they exchanged that for the other one that says, yes, believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised and you need to keep this law and that law. If you do all those things, then you'll be saved. Maybe they believe that. He wanted to know, how are they doing? Are they growing in the Christian life? Just like a little child, you want to see them grow. We've got two new grandchildren, three grandchildren, newer grandchildren I'm talking about. It's so fun to watch them grow and to watch them, oh, now they're crawling, now they're walking, now they're eating by themselves or trying to. But you see them grow and develop and you're glad. And when, when a parent sees they're not growing and not developing, then there's the concern. Well, Paul wants to make sure they're growing. He's always saying grow, grow, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby, Peter says. Peter says, add to your faith knowledge and to knowledge virtue and virtue this and that and perseverance. He wants you to grow and and press on. Are they doing that? Are they loving one another as Christ commanded 
Are they becoming bitter towards one another? Are, are divisions happening? And you read every epistle almost, and he's dealing with some issues in the church just like I'm referring to here. They're growing, but they're not growing in holiness. They're growing in dissension. They're growing in, in all of these other things. So Paul says, let us go to every city. You see, every city. They're all in danger. The strongest church is in danger. The smallest church is in danger. Just look at the church in Antioch, the one that sent them out. When they return, these false teachers come in. There's an uproar of the church. It's a difficult thing going on. And that was in a godly church with godly apostles and so forth and prophets. And what a what an advantage they have. And yet, Satan also had an advantage, didn't he? You think of these apostolic churches. They were planted by an apostle. You imagine the teaching they got in that short time, but what teaching they got. What an example they had before them of this man who who endured such hardship to bring us the gospel. What an inspiring example that was. And yet he's asking, let's see how they're doing. Not taking it for granted. We planted it. It must be good. Must be going strong. We told them all the right things. Here we go. We don't need to bother. No. Let's go and see how they're doing. Thomas Adams says, Where stands that utopia? That city in which no good case that it needed not to be visited. Sin doth multiply so fast that the poor preacher can't out-preach it. And so he said, Let's go see them. And so who does he go see? Well, I'm sure he went to see, first of all, the, the pastors that they had appointed in every city. Uh, you think of it. Here's what Mr. Adams says. He says he went first to see the pastors to whom they had set over the particular congregation. The apostles had been careful in their first election and good reason. The Bible says lay hands on no man suddenly and so forth. But some of them were... Fit in the choice, but some that were fit in the choice and the original decision to put them as elders may prove unworthy in the progress. Therefore, they must be visited and see how they do. For if the physician be sick, what shall become of his patients? Referring to the pastor as the physician. Certainly a minister's life is full of honor here and hereafter too, but so is it also full of danger here and hereafter too. And so let's go and see how they're doing. Which that brings us to the question about ourselves. How are we doing? How are you doing? How are you doing spiritually, not financially? Uh, not as your marriage, or you seem to be happy. Now, that's, a, that's an essential part. Not as your health okay. That's good and wonderful. But how are you doing spiritually? Because a man could be flailing physically, and yet growing spiritually. So that's the main point. How are they doing spiritually? Now, J.C. Ryle has a sermon on this, this text. He calls it, and I'm always struggling with a title, but he just calls it, How Do You Do? <laughs> how do you do? And he points it, How are you doing? How are you getting along? Spiritually, that is. And he asks... Quite a number of questions. I just want to give you 
uh, three or four of them with some quotes by him on this to make you think about yourself. How are you doing spiritually? He gives a list of subjects for self-inquiry. Another title of this message I found somewhere else is just called self-examination. Something that we're told to do before we come to the Lord's Supper. Let a man examine himself to see whether he's in the faith. The first question he asks is, do you ever think about your soul? Do you ever think about your soul? He says thousands of English people, and he lived back in the 19th century in in England. He says thousands of English people, I fear, cannot answer that question satisfactorily. They never give the subject of religion any place in their thoughts. From the beginning of the year to the end, they are absorbed in the pursuit of business, pleasure, politics, money, or self-indulgence in some kind or another. Death and judgment and eternity in heaven and hell and the world to come are never calmly looked at and considered. They just live on as if they were never going to die or rise again or stand at the bar of God or receive an eternal sentence. Do you ever think about your soul? Children, you have a soul that will never die. And when you die, what happens, the Bible says, your soul leaves the body and it goes and stands before God. You have a soul. But then he asks the second question, what do you do about it? If you think about your soul, what do you do? Do you ever do anything about your soul? And again, in his own context, he says, there are multitudes in England who think occasionally about religion. But unhappily, they never get beyond thinking. After a stirring sermon or after a funeral or under the pressure of illness or on a Sunday evening or when things are going badly in their families or when they meet some bright example of a Christian or when they fall in with some striking religious book or track, they will at the time think a good deal or even talk a little about religion in a vague way. But they stop short of that as if thinking and talking were enough to save them. They're always meaning, he says, and intending and purposing and resolving and wishing and telling us that they know what's right and hope to be found right at last. But they never attain to any action. And I don't mean you go out and do some religious thing and that's that settles it. And what you do is you turn to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You confess that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. And you're calling upon the Lord through His Son Jesus Christ to save you and to forgive you of your sins. That's where you start with it all. You need to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Paul said to the Thessalonians, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you just think about it or you do something about it? I know, I know some of you young people, you've been thinking about it, you've been thinking about it a long time. And I'm glad you're thinking about it. I hope you never stop. 
But that's the danger. You, you might just stop. You might just stop thinking about it. Thinking won't save you, but it's a step closer than the first person you described who doesn't think about it at all. Well, what can happen? And it can happen. Oh, you think about it when you're younger and then everything just changes. You get busy with college. You get busy with a career. You get busy with a marriage. You get, you get busy, busy, busy. Just like that seed planted. The, the cares of the world choke out the Word and it becomes unfruitful. Nothing happens. And then he says, do you know anything about true heart religion? That's a good question. Heart religion. Or he says, are you like so many who are satisfied with a mere outward performance of religion? Jesus rebuked those who worship God with their lips while their hearts were far from Him. God's never satisfied with it. With their mere formal worship. Just going through the motions. How many churches, including this one here, people just come in and go through the motions? It's a formal religion. There are many who are satisfied with the mere outward performance of religion. I say satisfied with an outward form of religion, but really they're never truly satisfied with that either because it can't satisfy. It cannot satisfy a works-based religion may give a false peace for a while, but they know nothing of the true joy and lasting peace of knowing that their sins are forgiven. They can't really sing with the hymn writer, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's a heart religion. An expression of one. You can say that song and sing it and do it all from your lips and not from your heart. And then he asks in the fourth place, I'll have to stop here, but he says, whether, ask whether you have received the forgiveness of your sins. Few reasonable Englishmen would think of denying that they are sinners. Many would probably say they are not so bad as, so, as many and they've not been so very wicked and so forth. But few, I repeat, would pretend to say that they always had lived like angels and never done or said or thought a, a wrong thing in all their days. In short, all must confess that we are more or less sinners and as sinners we are guilty before God and guilty we must be forgiven and lost and condemned for the, forever at the last day. And then he says, now it is the glory of the Christian religion that provides for us the very forgiveness that we need. That full, free, perfect, eternal, and complete forgiveness. And that only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That was the problem Paul saw with the Jews in his day and continues in this day, not only with them, but with so many he says, I bear witness that they have a zeal, but it's not according to a knowledge. He says they are trying to establish their own righteousness, which is through the law. Big mistake. You want to think you can do good things and make yourself righteous? Guess what? You failed already. And every time you try, you fail a little bit more. And you just dig your hole a little bit deeper. 
The Bible says very clearly, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Because if you're going to keep one, you need to keep them all. And you haven't even begun to keep one of them. Not fully, as he said. But God has provided a way to have all of your sins forgiven. That means to have them taken away completely, washed, white as snow. And not only that, He's provided a way that He's going to give you a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness that measures up to His holy standard. And God has a holy standard. God says His eyes are too pure to behold iniquity, but He has a righteousness that's going to bring you right up to His standard. When the Bible says, be holy as I am holy, we go, how can we be holy as He's holy? But, He's provided a way, a righteousness that's as holy as He is holy. And it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the one who came here and lived a perfect life all His life. He perfectly obeyed every commandment of God. There's not a child in here who could say that. Children, you know you've not always obeyed God. Sometimes you tell lies. Sometimes you get angry at your little brother or sister. Sometimes you're selfish. Sometimes you say bad things to your little brother. You know you've not kept the law perfectly, but Jesus did. And He kept it all the way. All the way. All the way to the very end. He could say, I've always done what's pleasing to you. He could say that to God. If you say that to God, you better duck. Because you've not kept it. And He knows it. And you know it if you'd be honest about it. But the righteousness of Christ, He says He gives you. He imputes it to you. He charges it to your account. It's like if you don't have any money in the bank. Or say you're, you look at your, your bank statement and you're, you're thousands of dollars in the hole. You're overdrawn big time. And you don't have any money to fill it back up. And then you look in there and now you see you've got millions. I have to think, well, the bank made a mistake. You've heard of those mistakes, but this is no mistake. God gives you His perfect righteousness. He charges it to your account. So when He looks upon you, the sinner, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we can stand boldly in His presence. That's why we can come into His presence and know that He's going to receive us. A lot of people think God's going to receive them. But they'll be like those. Jesus gave an example. There's many in that last day, that day of judgment, who will stand before Me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful things in Your name and this and that and so forth? And He says, I'm going to say to them, depart from Me. I never knew You. They had a false assurance. They thought they were saved, but they were lost. But if you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be eternally saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't tell me I tried it and it didn't work. Because you know what I'm going to say is you didn't really try it. Because I believe what the Bible says. It says it will work. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I hope you are saved. 
How do you do? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this this little verse that has has such a searching question. How do we do? Oh, Lord, help us to see clearly with our own eyes and the eyes of our heart what we're really like before you. And Lord, help us to repent in every way of every sin and help us to embrace your Son, Jesus Christ, now and forever as our only hope in life and in death of being made right with you. I pray for each one here that even the visitors we have, we don't know the state of their hearts, but you do. You knew the state of every one of these churches, just like in the book of Revelation. You walk in their midst and you said, I know, I know, I know. Oh, Lord, you know their hearts and you know our hearts. So we ask you, search us, oh, Lord, and try us and see if there's any wickedness in us and lead us in the way of everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.